I want to speak to you today on the topic of unfinished work. It is true that the work of our salvation is finished. Jesus declared it to be so on Calvary's hill as he hung between two thieves. He said for all the world to hear, it is finished. But it also should be noted that the work of God through his people on earth is unfinished. There's still much work for you and for me to do. Our unfinished work is both global and local. We live in a world of more than 8 billion people. With only 31% of them, that's 2.4 billion, claiming Christianity. We have unfinished work. We live in a country that boasts 63% of its population as belonging to Christ. That's 210 million out of 332 million Americans. Now, you and I could debate the veracity of that statement. You may think to yourself, there's no way that six out of ten Americans know Jesus. But it should also be noted that over the last 40 to 50 years, millions and millions of Americans are now classified as de-churched. What that means is that they used to go to church, and now they go no longer. When you and I stop and think about that, we have some unfinished work. We live in a state that's the buckle of the Bible belt. And in Alabama, 86% of our 5 million residents claim to be Christian. Yet we live in a county where, according to the latest statistics, only about 45% of the residents of Shelby County identify themselves as religious. We have unfinished work. I look out over the crowd today and I see several empty seats. We have unfinished work. As I examine the 50% of our congregation who at some point this year will go on one of our 23 mission trips, I realize we have some unfinished work. When we celebrate the 1,011 people over the last eight plus years who have joined this church and 333 of them have come through the waters of baptism, we applaud that, yet we quickly realize that within a five-mile radius of our steeple, there are more than 78,000 people. We have some unfinished work. We applaud the massive debt reduction of this faith family over the last several years. But we still have a church indebtedness of $1.3 million. We have some unfinished work. There are six weeks left in our fiscal year. And we know that we need to receive approximately $512,000 over those next six weeks in order for us to meet and exceed our approved 2023 budget. Let me tell you, that's very much within your reach. But we still have some unfinished work. 
there are a lot of ministries, a lot of programs that are going on here at First Baptist Pelham, and many of them are doing some great things. But every area of ministry needs some more leaders, some more money, and some more participants. We have unfinished work. I wish right now, in this very moment, you would look at your neighbor and say, neighbor, we have some unfinished work. Today we continue in our 12-part sermon series on the Minor Prophets. Today we come to that very slim two-chapter book of Haggai. And no, I'm not making up that name. It's really a book in the Old Testament. It may be easier for you just to go to the New Testament book of Matthew and go back a couple of pages. Inevitably, you'll run into Haggai. This morning, I want to read uh, 24 verses in your hearing. I know that's substantial, especially when you realize it's only a two-chapter book. But I want to begin at chapter 1, verse 1. I want to conclude at chapter 2, verse 9. I want us to get a pretty good understanding of the backdrop of what was going on in the days of Haggai. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to draw your sword. Turn to that Old Testament book, and once you've found it, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Haggai chapter 1, I'll begin at verse 1, I'll conclude at chapter 2, verse 9. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. So, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while my house remains a ruin? Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You planted much, but you harvest little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? declares the Lord Almighty. Because of my house, which remains a ruin, well, each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew, and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, the grain, the new wine, the oil, whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle and on the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shatil, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And they obeyed the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message to the Lord of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. 
So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shatil, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. They came on the 24th day of the sixth month, in the second year of King Darius. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shatil, the governor of Judah, and Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But you be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong. O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the hybrid, be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations And the desire of the nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord. The glory of the present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you and I are going to complete the unfinished work, we got to maintain the right priorities, the right promise, the right perspective. First and foremost, if you and I are going to finish the work, we must recapture the right priorities. Apparently, Haggai was among those counted in the first wave to return to Jerusalem from Babylonian captivity to rebuild the temple in the sacred city of Jerusalem. If you'll allow me just to briefly set the historical stage. You may recall that in the year 586 B.C., the Babylonians came into the southern kingdom of Judah. They literally overtook the country, torched the capital city of Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. They carted off the best and brightest that Judah had to offer. And people were in exile in Babylon, according to Jeremiah, for some 70 years. About 50 years into that Babylonian captivity, there was a a new superpower. The Medes and the Persians gave the Babylonians a black eye. In the year 539 B.C., the Persian king, a man by the name of Cyrus, issued a decree saying that all of the Jews living in Babylonian captivity could be released for the purpose of going back to the city of Jerusalem, that ancient town, the old city, and to rebuild the temple unto their God. There were a lot of people that left in that first wave. Haggai was one of them. And when he got there, he helped lead in the reconstruction of the temple. The people worked for about three years. But for some reason, after three years, they stopped. They just quit working. The temple 
remained dormant for 15 years. For a decade and a half, there was nothing more than the foundation that had been laid. In the opening lines of our passage, Haggai chapter 1, verse 1, there's now a new Persian king. His name is Darius. He's in the second year of his reign. And in the second year of his reign, following that 15-year hiatus, when God's people stopped working on the temple, the word of God came through the prophet Haggai, and he said, these people say, the time has not yet come for us to build the temple. What an excuse. The excuse was, it's just not the right time. i got to be honest with you. As a pastor, I've heard that excuse. And I've probably given that excuse. But I've heard that excuse, it's just not the right time. Pastor, it's not the right time for me to teach that class. It's not the right time for me to go on that mission trip. It's not the right time for me to give that money. It's not the right time for me to serve on that committee. It's just not the right time. Pastor, I'm in a difficult season right now. I'm just in a difficult season. It's just not the right time. I do not believe that the Lord is leading me at this time to do what you're asking me to do. It's just not the right time. Have you ever given that excuse? It was Benjamin Franklin who said that men who are really good at giving an excuse are seldom good at anything else. I'm sure that some of the Jewish people got real biblical with Haggai. They probably even quoted the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah said it's going to be 70 years. It ain't been 70 years yet. So we don't need to rebuild the temple because it's not been 70 years. It's only been 50-some years. But they just simply made an excuse. God called them out on their hypocritical inconsistency. He says, oh, so it's not the right time for you to build my house. But is it the right time for you to build and live in your paneled houses? It's not the right time for you to build my house, but it is the right time for you to build your house. And their houses, they were swanky houses. They were nice houses. They were bougie houses. To call them paneled houses means that they had very expensive timber. They had panel walls. They had large wooden beams that went across the ceiling of their various rooms. It was a nice house. In fact, the description of a paneled house is used in 1 Kings chapter 7. It describes the kind of house that a king would build for himself. So don't miss what God is saying. You have time to build your, your house, but you don't have any time to build my house. You are eager to build your kingdom, but you're not eager to build my kingdom. God called them out on this. He said, if you look at your life, it's just an exercise in futility. You are planting a lot, harvesting a little. You have a lot of food, but you're always hungry. You have plenty to drink, and you're always thirsty. You've got all kinds of clothes, closets full of clothes, but you're never warm. you got Good jobs that pay good money. But you put that money in purses and wallets and it's as if they have holes in them. The money that you put in is the money that goes out. 
you're never completely satisfied. In the words of that great theologian Mick Jagger, what the Lord is saying to his people is, I hear you when you say, I can't get no satisfaction. Because I try and I try and I try and I try, but I can't get no boom, 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 satisfaction. The people were living their life, but it was a futile life. They had a lot, but they had nothing. They had everything, but they wanted some more. They had money, but they needed more money. They had food, needed more food. Had drink, needed more drink. They had enough time to work on their house, but not God's house. It's in verse 8. When the Lord says to the prophet Haggai, to the people of God, go up into the mountain and cut down timber. Bring those logs down to Jerusalem and build my house. Build me a house that I can take pleasure in. Build me a house of excellence that's worthy of my people coming to worship me. Go to the mountain. Cut down the trees. Bring the timber. Build my house. It was Warren Wiersbe who asked a very provocative question. Why did God have to tell the people to go to the mountain and cut down timber? When just a few years earlier, according to Ezra chapter 3, King Cyrus had authorized logs from Lebanon to be shipped to Joppa and carted from Joppa over to Jerusalem. Why would God have to tell his people, go up and cut more timber? When the king had already authorized enough timber. Warren Wiersbe reaches this conclusion. The resources that God had given his people for his work, they used on themselves. Where do you think they got the wood for their paneled houses? The logs from Lebanon. The logs that King Cyrus had authorized to be shipped down to Joppa, carted over to Jerusalem so that God's temple could be rebuilt. Yet for 15 years, God's people said, well, let's take that timber, let's take that expensive wood, let me build my house instead of God's house. Now, before we get overly critical of those people, can we critique us people just for a second? We've got time to go on our trips, but we don't have time to go on mission trips. We have enough money for our budget, but we just don't have enough money for God's budget. We're eager to fulfill our work, but we're not so eager to fulfill God's work. We're adamant about building our kingdom, but we're not as adamant about building God's kingdom. Why is that? Because sometimes we take the resources the money, the energy, the time. We take the resources that God has given to us for his work and we've used it on ourselves. Church, I cannot tell you how much money you need to give to God. I can't tell you what your offering needs to be. I can't tell you how much time you need to give to the work of the church. I can't tell you the number of ministries to be a part of, number of committees to sign up for. I can't tell you what all you need to do in and through First Baptist Church Pelham. But I can tell you this much. When it comes to our generosity of our money and our ministry, when it comes to our generosity of our time and our talents, I am owned 
by a statement from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said, when it comes to generosity, I can't decide how much to give God. But this much I know. My generosity towards God ought to pinch me a little bit. I ought to be able to feel it. I ought to be squeezed just a bit. When it comes to my generosity of my money and my ministry and my time and my talents, when it comes to the stuff that I have received from God and I give back to God, when it comes to the level of our generosity, we ought to be pinched just a little bit. We ought to be kept from doing some things that we normally would do. And though some things are not bad things, they're very good things. That there's some good things that we would want to do for ourselves or for our family. We're kept from doing that because our generosity precludes it. And why are we so generous? Because God is worth it. We've come to the conclusion that God is worth it. That's why we give, that's why we go, that's why we share, that's why we serve. We've come to the conclusion that God is worth it. God did not withhold anything when he emptied the treasure of heaven and sent Jesus, the crown jewel of heaven, to secure our salvation. And if God gave his best unto us, then who are we to give anything less back to him? So C.S. Lewis just reminds us that our generosity towards the Lord It ought to pinch us a little bit. We ought to feel squeezed. We ought to feel it. The problem of the people living in the days of Haggai, it's a similar problem that we have in our day. Sometimes our priorities get out of line, don't they? Our priorities get inverted. And whenever our priorities are inverted, God always gets neglected. I don't know why that's true. I just know it is true. Sometimes when our priorities are inverted, our spouse might get neglected. We might neglect our children. Perhaps we neglect our friends. But I promise you this much, when our priorities get out of line, God always gets neglected. I don't know why we do it, but we do. We give God the shaft. We give him what's left over if there's anything left over. Leftover energy, leftover effort, leftover time, leftover money, leftover resources, just whatever's left over. And we, and we neglect God so that we can keep ourselves happy. Did you hear what the Lord said to the people of Haggai? You are busy building your homes. It's at that moment in my study that I literally had to stop writing and stop studying, and I could not say amen, I had to say oh my. Oh my. How many times have we verbalized, how many times have we said, you know, I can't do this or that at the church or for God, why? Because I'm just too busy. I've got too much to do with the family and the kids. I mean, I'm trying to run Watkins Incorporated. And I'm trying to run Watkins Incorporated, keep my household running, keep all the things spinning. There's so many things that's going on with the kids and the family and and everything that's happening. I mean, it's just so hard. It's so busy. Are Are you involved with Watkins Incorporated? I know you're not in my house, but your house. Where you are the CEO, where you're the one who is the chief financial officer. And everything is just so 
busy. It's possible to get so busy that you're too busy for God. And whenever your priorities get inverted, God always gets neglected. It's at this moment that I'm reminded of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added to you as well. You seek his kingdom and his righteousness. And all this other stuff will be added to you as well. Because of that statement of Jesus, I've reached this uh, conclusion. The only place that's the rightful place for King Jesus is first place in my life. That's an easy sentence to memorize. It's pretty hard to live. The only place that's the rightful place for King Jesus is first place in my life. The only rightful place for King Jesus is first place on my calendar, first place in my bank account, first place in my relationships, first place in my marriage, first place in my parenting, first place in my pastoring. The only rightful place for King Jesus is first place in my life. It is an easy sentence to memorize. It's a difficult sentence to live out. If you and I are going to finish the work, we must first and foremost recapture right priorities. Second, if we're going to finish the work, not only do we recapture right priorities, but we must rely on the right promise. When this word of correction came from God through the prophet to the people, we are told that Zerubbabel, who is the appointed governor of Judah at this time, he is of the line and lineage of David, so he does have some royal blood pulsating through his veins, but he's the one who's kind of uh, dubbed as the governor of Judah. When he hears the word of God, when Joshua, the man who's uh, labeled the high priest, and when all the holy remnant of the land, when they hear the word of God, you know what they do? They obeyed the voice of the Lord. Now, if you've been with us for this 12-part series, you realize that that phrase is not often spoken in the minor prophets. Most of the time, those scallywags are so stiff-necked, they are so hard-headed that they don't repent. But in Haggai, they do. Because they concluded that the only rightful response when God's Spirit convicts us with our money and our ministry, convicts us of how we use our time and our talents, the only appropriate response is to obey the voice of the Lord. Not to get defensive. Not to try to explain your way out of it. Not to defend your disobedience. But just to obey. Lord, you're right and I'm wrong. What a powerful way to live life. For you to declare to the God of the cosmos, God, you're right. And I'm a sinner in need of you. That's a great way to live. Surrendered unto him. These people, they obeyed the voice of the Lord. And their obedience was predicated on a promise. Did you hear the promise? It's spoken twice in our passage. Chapter 1, verse 13, chapter 2, verse 4, the Lord says, I am with you. 
Their obedience was predicated on that promise. Because God is with them, they said, I must obey. Because God was with them, we ought to obey. Because God is with us, they said, woe to us if we don't obey. God is with us. This is one of the greatest promises in all the Bible. Repeatedly, the Lord says from Genesis to Revelation, I will never leave you, I'll never forsake you. I am with you. In our passage, he says it twice. It's not that he has a stuttering problem. He just wants you to hear it clearly. If you miss it the first time, surely you'll get it the second time. God says, I am with you. Our obedience is predicated on that same promise. Because God is with us, we can't serve him too much. Because God is with us, we can't worship him too much. Because God is with us, we can't love him too much. Because God is with us, we can't talk to him too much. Because God is with us, we can't talk about him too much. Because God is with us, we can't think on him too much. Because God is with us, we can't give him too much. Because God is with us, we can't sing too much. Because God is with us, we can't praise too much. God is with his people. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. And because of his ever presence, then we will always obey him. We long to live our life relying on that promise. Listen, friend, if every other promise of the Bible proved false, which it's not going to, if this was the only promise that God gave his people, which is not the only promise because he gives us a bunch of them, but if it was the only promise, this one would be enough. The God of the cosmos says to you, I'm with you. I've got your back. I will never forsake you. I will never harm you. I will never tell you to do anything that's not for your good and for my glory. I will always lead you in the right path. I will always tell you the right thing to do. All you have to do is obey me. Will you trust him and will you obey him? Here, This second principle is a powerful one because if we are going to finish our work, we must rely on that right promise that God will never leave us. Because he will never leave us, the only appropriate response is for us to obey him. There's a third principle that if you and I are going to finish the work, not only must we recapture right priorities and rely on the right promise But we've got to retain the right perspective. We've got to retain the right perspective. It was the Lord who spoke once again to Haggai. He told him to go to the people and make another prophecy. It's a few weeks after they started the work. I mean, they are getting after it, man. I mean, they're laboring hard. They picked up the hammer. They started working hard. They went up in the mountains. They cut down the timber. They came down. They started building on that good, sure foundation of the temple. I mean, they were constructing something that was worthy of God Almighty. And after working for a few weeks, the prophet comes up and he asks the question. He says, okay, uh, stop working. Let me ask you a question. Anybody here remember seeing this temple in its former glory. Anybody here remember that? What he's asking them is, do any of you remember the good old days? 
I think Haggai's an old geezer by now. I think he's an old man. And I think he saw the former glory of this temple. That's King Solomon's temple. And he saw Solomon's temple and all of its beauty and all of its splendor before it was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., before the Jewish people were carted off to captivity. I think that Haggai saw that. And he's asking the question, hey, anybody else? Any of you remember seeing that old temple? And there are a bunch of old guys and gals that raised their hand. They said, yeah, we remember that day. We remember the beauty of that iconic structure as it stood up against the landscape of the ancient old city. And Haggai looks at them and says, what do you think about this work that we're doing now? And then he says, yeah, it's pretty much nothing, isn't it? History will prove that the second temple, the one that was built post-exile, it was only half the size of Solomon's temple. I mean, what those guys were building, it was good, it was okay, but it was puny compared to Solomon's temple. It was insignificant compared to Solomon's temple. It paled in comparison. I mean, Solomon's temple with all of its beauty and all the gold and all the jewels, I mean, all the expensive timber, I mean, it, it was a thing to behold, but this temple, it's just, it's half the shell of the old one. It's half the size of the old one. Yeah, Haggai, you're right. This is terrible. This is pathetic. It's puny. It's nothing. Now, Haggai is really setting them up. Because I will tell you, um, it's perfectly fine to be nostalgic. But you do realize that when you think about the good old days, you only remember the good stuff. You don't remember the bad stuff. It's okay to be nostalgic, but sometimes that can be depressing because you've heard the people, I remember when, and you know what's coming next, a description of how it used to be so much better than it is today. Look, the call of the gospel always reminds us our best days are in front of us, not behind us. Whoo, that demanded a hearty amen, and y'all missed it, all right? So I'm going to say it again. The gospel proclaims that our best days are in front of us and not behind us. That's better. All right. So, so here, Haggai is setting them up a little bit. Hey, do any of you remember the former glory of that great temple of Solomon? Yeah, I remember seeing that. Well, what do you think about what we're building right now? Well, it's terrible. It's nothing. It's puny. I mean, it's half the size. We might as well quit. Be strong, O Zerubbabel. Be strong, O Joshua. Be strong, holy remnant of the land. He always identifies them in those three tiers, right? He identifies the governor. He identifies the high priest. He identifies the holy remnant of God's people. And he tells them on three occasions. He repeats it three times. Be strong. Haggai knows exactly what he's doing. That's very reminiscent for on three occasions, it was Moses who told Joshua, be strong. It is the Lord who told Joshua, be strong. It is David who will tell his son Solomon, who will make this great, grand, glorious temple of old 
he will say, be strong. Be strong. Don't give up. Be strong. Work hard. Be strong. For God promises, I will shake the earth again. I will shake the nations. I will shake the sea. I will do something spectacular. I will bring the desire of the nations, for the desire of the nations will come. And the glory of this present house that you're building will be greater than the glory of the former house. I own all the silver, God says. I own all the gold. And I promise you that the house that you're building right now, it'll have so much splendor and so much glory that my peace will be upon it. And through this structure, my peace will be made known to the nation. Now, what is God saying in all of this? He is reminding the people living in the days of Haggai, keep the right perspective. It was John Piper in his study of this passage who said the right perspective is this. You are building more than you see. Don't forget that. You're building more than you see. Don't minimize your ministry. Don't trivialize your offering. Don't think that what you're doing for the Lord here in First Baptist Pelham and through this congregation is somehow puny compared to what people did of days of old. No, don't minimize it. You are building more than you see. That's what God is telling the people living in the days of Haggai. Look, you, you think that you look back on those yesteryears, you look back at the Temple of Solomon, and you think to yourself, oh boy, now that was the good old days. That's when things were really moving and grooving. That's when a great temple was formed. But now, now all we've got is half the size. Now all we've got is just half the structure. It is pathetic. No, you're building more than you can see. So friend, when you do ministry, don't think, that somehow it's nothing. It is so much more than just a shoebox for Operation Christmas Child. It's so much more than just a bag of canned goods that we give to Shelby Baptist Association. It's so much more than $50 a week that you give in your offering. What you're building is so much more for you think to yourself, I'm just, a, I'm just a Sunday school teacher in the student ministry. All I am, I'm just a volunteer in the children's department. I'm just a greeter on Sunday morning. I'm just a coach for upward basketball. I'm just one member of the choir. I'm just one person on a committee. I'm just one individual. I can't do, what can I do? I can't do anything. Friend, you build more than you see. What you're doing, what you're giving how you're going, God is using it to build his temple. He's using it for his glory. Don't ever trivialize what you're doing for the Lord. Haggai just set him up. Saying, you remember the good old days? Oh yeah, I remember the good old days. Yeah, forget them. Because what you're doing right now will bring greater glory to God than what was in the former house of Solomon's temple. What's extremely interesting to me is that just a few hundred years later, this is the same temple that Jesus will attend. 
Now, I do need to tell you that before the coming of Christ, King Herod began a 46-year renovation of the temple. That's a long time, 46 years. We think, we think it takes Birmingham a long time to repair the bridges in downtown, but it's not 46 years, all right? I mean, it took him 46 years to renovate the temple. And Herod did it right. He expanded the temple. He refurbished the temple. Uh, he, he made it to the standard of Solomon's temple. But even to a devout Jew, what Herod did, it's still considered the second temple of Israel. And the centerpiece of what Haggai built is the centerpiece of Herod's temple. And Jesus walked those courts. Jesus stood in those sacred halls. And when Jesus walked in those courts, because Herod completed his temple about the same time that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, yeah, by the time Jesus started his ministry, by the time he was walking with the disciples, that temple had been standing for approximately 30 years, and everybody marveled at that temple. And Jesus walked those halls. When Jesus walked in those courts, he fulfilled the prophecy of Haggai. For Haggai said to the men and women that were laboring, what you're building right here, the glory that will be in this place will be far greater than the glory of the former house of Solomon's temple. He says, God once again will shake the nations. God once again will stir up his people, and God will send the desire of the nations. That phrase, desire of the nations, that's a messianic phrase. It points to the coming of Jesus. Jesus is the desire of the nations. Now, you may want to differ with that and say, but wait a minute, there are a lot of sinful nations that I don't think they desire Jesus, but the one thing that every nation ought to desire is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So Jesus is the desire of the nations, and he did come. And he walked in that temple. And he escorted his glory, his splendor into that presence. But do you remember that Jesus said in John chapter 2, you destroy this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. And people looked around and said, Jesus, what are you drinking? Because this is a great temple. Herod built this temple. It's got great marble. It's got expensive timber. I mean, a lot of precious metals. If, if this massive place is torn down, you can rebuild it in three days? And John says in chapter 2 that Jesus was not talking about a physical structure. He was talking about his body. You tear down this temple, Jesus says, I will rebuild it in three days. You do realize that according to the book of Hebrews, Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is the holy of holies. Jesus is the lamb of God who was slain before the very foundation of the world. When Jesus was crucified, the gospel writer tells us that Jesus, this holy of holy place, but when he died, the curtain that divided the holy place from the most holy place was ripped in two from top to bottom, symbolic that now God had come to man so that man could get to God. Because before Jesus died on the cross, only the high priest could go behind that curtain only once a year to give a sacrifice. 
and he literally had to wear a bell around his waist because as it was tied to a rope that if he collapsed that all the other people would just pull him out by the rope because nobody could go behind that sacred curtain and Jesus he tore the curtain by his ripped torn body we enter into the most holy place a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ hey you know that a temple has a twofold purpose Number one, it serves as a place where people can come worship God. Number two, it serves as a place where sacrifice for sin is offered. I contend that Jesus fulfilled both those purposes for he is the temple. It is through him that we're able to worship God. It is through him that the sacrifice for our sin was paid full, free, and forever. It is through Jesus that we have eternal life. Jesus is the temple of God. When John sees that great revelation in Revelation, chapter 21 he makes note that in the new city there is no temple in the new city that comes down from the heavens there is no temple do you know why because John says that God and the lamb are its temple that Jesus is the temple of God he is the one through him we can worship God through him our sins can be forgiven it is certainly true that the work of salvation is finished in Jesus Christ. Jesus declared on the cross, it is finished. But the work that God wants you and me to do on planet earth, it's not finished yet. And I came this morning to tell you that I'm confident I'll finish the work that God wants me to do. And I'm confident that you'll finish the work that God called you to do. And you think to yourself, well, Pastor, that sounds kind of arrogant. No, I'm not being arrogant. I just simply know that my work will be finished because his work was finished. That what I do, what you do, is tied and tethered to what he did. For on Friday, Jesus died. He died for your sins and for my sins. He died for a world of lost sinners. On that Friday, Jesus endured hell for us. Jesus died on the cross. They took his dead body off the cross, placed him into a borrowed grave. And on the third day, Jesus rebuilt the temple. On the third day, that Jesus got up. On the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ validates the work that he did on the cross. And it promises that our work will be done through him that he will work in us he will work through us so I know I'll finish my work and I know that you'll finish your work and you say but pastor how can you be so confident that you're going to finish and I'm going to finish the work that God has for us I can say with confidence because I serve a risen savior and he's in the world today and I know that he is living whatever men may say I see his hand of mercy and I hear his voice of cheer and just the time I need him he's always near he lives he lives Christ Jesus lives today he walks with me and he talks to me a long life's narrow way he lives he lives salvation to impart you ask me how I know he lives he lives within my heart because he lives I can face tomorrow because he lives all fear is gone because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives I'm gonna finish the work you're gonna finish the work why because he finished the work he died on Friday and he got up on Sunday And all of our work is tied to the accomplishment of his work. So this morning I ask you, do you know this Savior?
do you know this Jesus? If you don't know him, then you don't know why I get excited. You don't know why I start sweating and spitting. You don't understand why I get so amped up. You don't, if you don't know him, then you don't get me. And I understand. But today, if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, today can be the day of your salvation. Where you say, Lord, my life is an example and an exercise of futility. I have everything and I have nothing. So I need that peace that passes all understanding. And Jesus says, I'll give it to you. We're going to sing a song. As soon as we get done singing, if you need to come and say, Pastor, I need this Jesus, then we want you to come. If you are a believer, can I ask you, how's the work? How you doing with the work? I mean, how's your ministry going? How generous are you? How much money are you giving to the church? You say, oh, pastor, that's none of your business. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Because we're about making disciples for a global impact. So I can ask you, you can ask me, hey, how's it going? How's the work? Are you giving your money and your ministry to the Lord? Are you giving your time and talents unto Christ? If you're not, your priorities are out of whack. The only place for the rightful place for King Jesus is first place in your life. If you're not doing all that you need to do, rely on the promise where God says, I am with you. And if somehow you're discouraged because it's just not going as well as you think it ought to go, as well as it used to go in those good old days, ah, maintain the right perspective. You're building more than you can see. So today, hook your work to his work. Align your work with his work. And what you give to Christ will succeed. I promise you. You will finish your work because he finished his work on the cross. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead. Won't you trust him? Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this moment of invitation. Lord, we pray for anyone here who needs to accept you as Savior. Let it happen today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.